Among the wonderful words of life that we have received from the mind and the heart and the hand of our God are these found at the end of the fifth chapter of Matthew, in which Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, in order that you might be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you should be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. My message this morning is about the larger context in which this paragraph appears, but I'd like to talk with you for just a moment about its rather obvious but dreaded implications. We are called to honor Jesus Christ, which means doing his will, even when it is against our will and contrary to our liking. And one of the arenas in life in which the reality of our faith in Jesus Christ demonstrates itself is in the relationships of life in our marriages, among our families, with our friends, in our church, where we work, where we live, where we learn, where we play. And in those arenas, hopefully not in our homes, but possibly, but certainly in the outer world, there are relationships that trouble us. There are people that we don't like. People who have been unkind to us, people who have cheated us, people who have said false things or perhaps even true things about us that shouldn't have been said. People whom if we were driving down the highway at 50 miles an hour and they stepped off the curb, we'd think twice about swerving or breaking to a stop. You have people like that in your life. I have people like that in my life. The Bible says that God has placed those people in our lives for purposes. They are not accidents. And Jesus here very specifically tells us how we should think about those people, what we should feel about those people, and how we should treat those people when we have opportunity. The judgment, the anger, the resentment, the hostility that we feel are natural to the flesh. But it's the will of God that our flesh be nailed to the cross and die with Jesus. And the new life that he has placed within us express itself in these difficult moments. So I'm going to suggest that when you go home today, you think about that person that first came to mind when I said all of that. And I want you to write him a letter, and I want you to say, Dear, I want you to know that by the marvelous grace of God in worship today, I found the mercy to forgive you for being the unscrupulous rat that you are. (laughs) And then sign it, of course, love, respectfully, and your name. You and I are instructed by the Word of God. The Word of God is often difficult to understand. The Word of God is often even more difficult to obey. And yet it is to obedience that we are called. And may God bless us wherever there's a need as we struggle to bend our wills to match his will and glorify him in the worst of relationships. As most of you know, I suspect this paragraph occurs 
as a part of a body of Jesus' teachings found in the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of Matthew that we have come to know by a name that the Bible does not give it as the Sermon on the Mount. The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament are important to us for several reasons. They are basic rules about living that God has given to us in grace and mercy. But they also contain principles that undergird much of the morality and the theology of the Old Testament. And it's probably fair to say that the Sermon on the Mount is like that to the faith that we associate with Jesus Christ. Here we have specific requirements issued from the one we call Lord that are rules in themselves and also principles with much broader possibilities for implication in our lives. It's probably because they are so foundational to our faith and are living out our faith that in the providence of God, they were included at the very beginning of the first book of the New Testament, which means that the person who is curious about Christianity and starts reading the Gospel of Matthew soon comes upon these very important words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We scan the Sermon on the Mount, and like so many other passages of Scripture, the words at first seem simple to us and easy to understand. But as we spend time looking at them more carefully and contemplate their meaning, we recognize that they are actually deep and difficult. There are interpretive issues that come to the student of Scripture regarding the Sermon on the Mount. One of them has to do with the question, is this body of Jesus' teachings a record of what he said on just one occasion? Or are they rather a compilation of things that he said on different occasions and stitched together, inspired by the Holy Spirit, by Matthew? Now, this is not an earth-shaking issue for us to face as Christians. Our view of the scriptures, our view of Christ, the authority of Matthew are neither weakened nor strengthened by the answer to which we come. But for those of us who are curious about the Bible, it's a question that eventually we can't ignore. I find myself inclined, as I would imagine some of you do, to the view that this is not a sermon that Jesus preached on a single occasion, but rather a compilation of things that he said on many different occasions. I think this is also true of Matthew's compilation of things that Jesus said about the last times found in the 25th and 20, or 24th and 25th chapters of this gospel and those familiar beautiful parables of the kingdom recorded in its 13th chapter. Few of my reasons for thinking this are one, that Matthew appears to place this sermon very early in Jesus' ministry. It's the first specific thing that is recorded after Jesus' baptism, his temptation, and his recovery from his temptation. And yet the fourth chapter of this gospel ends by telling us that Jesus was attracting great crowds of people from all over that part of the ancient world, from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and even areas beyond the Jordan. This is the last verse of the fourth chapter, and then we come to the fifth chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And this description of Jesus' notoriety or popularity spreading far beyond the boundaries of Galilee is, is something that we would find more fitting to the closing months of his ministry rather than these earliest days when he was concentrating on gathering his disciples and training them. 
And this suggests that Matthew is recording events and words according to some purpose other than the writing of a pure, orderly history of those events and words, which opens the possibility to us that this is, in fact, a compilation rather than a single sermon preached on a single occasion. And related to this is the observation that the strident tone of some of the things that Jesus is said to have said in the Sermon on the Mount fit more neatly in the closing weeks of his life when he was literally poking a stick in the eye of his enemy, goading them to do their role in redemptive history rather than the quietness of the early months of that ministry. And the 13th chapter of Matthew particularly shows signs that Matthew grouped teachings related to one another but issued on a variety of occasions. But again, whatever you think about this, our view of the scriptures, our view of Christ, our view of the authenticity of Matthew are unaffected by whatever we should decide. But there's another interpretive difficulty that's much more important to us. And it relates to the fact that we are sometimes in some settings given the impression that the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a collection of pleasant, relatively innocuous religious and moral aphorisms basic generosity that formed the common ground of all religions and every effort on the part of sincere people to lead decent and useful lives. The popular thought is that men and women of any religious faith, and even those who have no faith at all, would benefit greatly from knowing these mild proverbs and trying to apply them to their lives. And like the common and popular views of so many other passages of Scripture, it's hard to imagine how people could miss the obvious and stray so far from what is plainly true. Because actually, in this collection of his teachings, the one we call Lord dries, draws a line in the sand. And he demands that all people everywhere take their places on one side of that line or the other. In the Sermon on the Mount, Instead of taking the position of the idealistic that all religious creeds and moral philosophies are essentially the same, he warned those who would pay attention to beware of those who teach falseness. Instead of engaging in the naive assumption that all people go to a better place beyond the grave, Jesus he was those that he would gladly accept in the judgment and those that he would reject. Instead, of, rather than the quietness of the early months of that ministry. And the 13th chapter of Matthew particularly shows signs that Matthew grouped teachings related to one another, but issued on a variety of occasions. But again, whatever you think about this, our view of the scriptures, our view of Christ, our view of the authenticity of Matthew are unaffected by whatever we should decide. But there's another interpretive difficulty that's much more important to us. And it relates to the fact that we are sometimes in some settings given the impression that the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a collection of pleasant, relatively innocuous religious and moral aphorisms, basic generosity that formed the common ground of all religions and every effort on the part of sincere people to lead decent and useful lives. The popular thought is that men and women of any religious faith, and even those who have no faith at all, would benefit greatly from knowing these mild proverbs and trying to apply them to their lives. 
And like the common and popular views of so many other passages of Scripture, it's hard to imagine how people could miss the obvious and stray so far from what is plainly true. Because actually, in this collection of his teachings, the one we call Lord draws a line in the sand. And he demands that all people everywhere take their places on one side of that line or the other. In the Sermon on the Mount, instead of taking the position of the idealistic that all religious creeds and moral philosophies are essentially the same, he warned those who would pay attention to beware of those who teach falseness. Instead of engaging in the naive assumption that all people go to a better place beyond the grave, Jesus spoke of those that he would gladly accept in the judgment and those that he would reject. Instead of taking the warm and fuzzy view that all people are essentially striving toward the same ends in life, Christ spoke of two roads running through the course of human history, the one wide and comfortable and crowded that leads to destruction, and the other narrow, difficult, and traveled by relatively few but that leads to that life that has no end. And instead of identifying himself with those who insist that the most important attachment to religion is genuineness, the position of those who tell us that it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you're sincere, Jesus here pronounces a particularly harsh judgment on those who trifle with the commandments of God and urge others to share their views. In Christ's teaching here and elsewhere, the definition of what is good is clarified, the bar of righteous living is lifted, and a clearer distinction between the saved and the lost is drawn. The Sermon on the Mount is not a collection of pleasant shibboleths, sweet, folksy pieces of advice received from the wisest of men. Rather, it's a clear and clarion call to serious discipleship issued by the very Son of God. You and I are well advised to read it, to contemplate it, to wrestle with its depths, and make every effort to apply it to our believing and to our living. The particular section of the Sermon on the Mount I want to deal with this morning begins at the 21st verse of the fifth chapter and continues to the end of that chapter. And in it, there are six paragraphs each of which begins with the Lord's words, You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. In verse 21, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. In verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit murder. In verse 33, You have heard that it was said, You shall not swear falsely. In verse 31, You have heard that it was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Each of these statements begins with a quotation taken directly from the Old Testament law and gives us the immediate impression that what the Lord is doing here is correcting or amending or modifying or tightening the requirements of that law. He seems to say, the law forbids the act of adultery, but I say that you shouldn't let yourself entertain lustful thoughts. The law requires you to take oaths on certain occasions, but I say that you shouldn't take oaths at all. 
The law demands that you love God and despise your enemies, but I say you should treat your enemies with deference and kindness. Here the Lord appears to be fine-tuning the law. Is this what is happening? And as we wrestle with this question, I want to remind you that the stakes are very high. Jesus believed that the Old Testament law originated with God. He took the same view of that part of the scripture that our theology requires that we take of the entire Bible. It is inspired, absolutely reliable, authentic, the inerrant word of God. But if he, as the Son of God, regarded the theology and morality of this inspired law to be inadequate, if he redefined the standards of truth and goodness taught in the homes of Hebrews for 14 centuries, then we have to wonder whether the theory of evolution applies to theology and morality. If the first four books of the New Testament replace the first five books of the Old Testament, thoughtful Christians have to wonder how relevant are those first four books of the New Testament to us. If truth changed in the 14th centuries that separated Christ from the giving of the law, what changes in God's requirements have occurred in the 21 centuries that have come and gone since Jesus appeared and taught these things? If we assume that in these six paragraphs of Matthew 5, the one we call Lord is second-guessing the Old Testament law, then we find ourselves walking out on the very thin ice of theological and moral relativity. If Jesus didn't fully accept Moses... How can we fully accept Paul? Arrayed against this possibility is the very definition of truth. When the men who agreed to sign the Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, they weren't pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the defense of tentative political theories, but to ideas they perceived to be timeless and unchangeable. If religious and moral truth changes from age to age and from place to place, then it isn't truth. Opposed to this view that Jesus changed the meaning and scope of the Old Testament law are his immediately previous statements about the inviolability and the permanence of that law. He said, do not think that I have come to destroy the law. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from that law. He said, Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And arguing against this view that Jesus is changing the law in some way is the fact that the religious truth that God delivered to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David was handed intact by Christ to those who followed him. And the moral precepts expressed in the law and repeated by the prophets find their strong echo in the teachings of Christ and in the writings of those men he appointed to be apostles. But knowing that there seems to be but one stream of truth that flows from the earliest verses of the Bible to the last, and recognizing the great dangers inherent in the possibility that more recent revelations correct or replace earlier revelations, we're still left with the question, just what is Jesus doing in these six paragraphs in Matthew 5? Teachings in which he seems to be amending 
the Old Testament law? The answer to this question is found in that last paragraph that I read at the beginning of my sermon. Here Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. Note the citation has two parts. You shall love your neighbor, you shall hate your enemy. The Old Testament indeed says you shall love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 contains one of the great principles of the behavior of true believers that Jesus quoted in the New Testament. It says, you will love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. But we search the law in vain, looking for anything resembling, you will hate your enemy. You will love your neighbor is found in the Old Testament law. You will hate your neighbor is not. And this means that when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, he wasn't quoting and correcting the Old Testament law, but rather he was quoting and correcting common teachings about that law. In the New Testament, we're told directly or indirectly that the Jews hated the Romans and the Samaritans, that Judeans despised Galileans, that the Pharisees looked down their noses at just about everybody, and the poor were commonly treated with disdain. This kind of cultural hatred was common and visibly practiced in the time that Christ lived. This sneering contempt toward certain people explains why the Lord made a beggar named Lazarus and a traveling Samaritan the spiritual heroes of two of his parables. And one of the emphases in the teachings of Christ is his effort to correct not the religion of the Jewish people, but the misuse of that religion. Further evidence that this is what he was doing is found in the paragraph that begins, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, and in which Jesus condemns immoral thoughts. Because we read in the Old Testament, indeed, you shall not commit adultery. And just a few short commandments later, we read, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. This was all found in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't adding anything to it. But taking into account the fact that that second commandment evidently was being widely ignored among his contemporaries. This is a correction that holds a very important lesson for us. The misunderstandings and the misuses of the law of God that were common in the days of Jesus didn't happen all at once, but rather they accumulated gradually over years and decades and probably centuries. Of those who taught these errors, Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. The contrition, the humility, the longing for righteousness and truth the law is intended to produce were almost completely lacking among the Hebrew people at the time that John the Baptist pointed his finger and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the Gospel of John, we read that Christ came unto his own people, but they didn't recognize him, and they didn't receive him. Let's be careful to remember that these twisters of the law of God were very sincerely religious people. 
They were present in their synagogues every Sabbath and attended services in the temple as often as the law required it. They were fastidious about religious ritual, often eloquent in their public prayers, devoted to the practice of tithing. Their leaders were so dallas in their religious identity as to risk the wrath of the Romans and the disapproval of their own people by engineering the crucifixion of Christ. And they were so devoted to their faith that they thought that they were serving God when they persecuted Christ's followers. But zeal and sincerity means nothing to our God, who places a far higher premium on truth. In the church today, in the wider church, there's a broader array of doctrinal and moral disagreement, every bit of which is held by zealous and sincere people. There are differences that separate denominations from one another. There are differences that separate churches within denominations. In that regard, we differ with our Baptist friends about the amount of water required for a baptism that God regards as legitimate. And disagree with our Pentecostal brethren about the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We quarrel with the Nazarenes about the permanence of salvation, and with the Seventh Day Adventists about the proper day of worship. We take exception to the Catholic Church's teachings on purgatory, and the Lutherans' view of the sacraments. We have very definite views of Christian worship, of the government of the Church, and of morality that set us apart from many others who call themselves Christians. In all of these areas of disagreement, both we and they are both sincere and zealous, just as they were whose errors Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. If the Word of God has its intended effect on our minds and character, then our stance toward those with whom we disagree will not be one of arrogant pride. Our conversations will then be marked as much by our willingness to learn from them as by our desire to correct them. Let's be careful not to let the undeniable logic of our theology, or the centuries our tradition of faith has been in place, or the sincerity with which we hold to it, or the zeal with which we teach and defend it. Ever become substitutes for the certainty that what we believe is deeply and thoroughly rooted in the Word of God. And let's be reminded by these words of Christ that the high standards of God expressed in His teachings, but before that in the law, are far beyond the abilities of any person to meet. If the law offered salvation to all who were able to keep the law, none would be saved. Religious zeal, perfect theology, good works piled upon good works—none of this can save our souls. Salvation cannot be gained by human effort. It is the gift of God, offered by grace, received in faith. In the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. In the teachings of Christ and the writings of the apostle in the New, the foundation of salvation is everywhere consistently presented as being not the works of men, but the single work of Jesus Christ upon His cross. In first-century Israel, there were many who were convinced that they could win and had won for themselves the approval.